This is John Cackley with Centric Biz and Tech Talks. Today I'm talking with Joe Arors and Rich Caldwell about business continuity and disaster recovery. Good morning. So uh, first, if you could just tell me a bit about yourselves. Uh, Rich, if you could go first. Sure. I am the uh, lead AWS architect at Centric Consulting. I, I work on mostly uh, AWS type of projects, but kind of cross over into some Azure and some more data center specific stuff as well, because I have a long history in consulting um, around data center technologies. Thanks, Rich. Joe, how about yourself? Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Joe Hours. I head up Centric's modern software delivery practice. Our, our practice focuses on combining the best practices among agile DevOps, cloud uh, testing and emerging technology to really help our clients uh, deliver faster with better reliability, higher quality, and obviously faster uh, velocity. I've been in consulting for well over 20 years now, done quite a bit of data center migrations, participated in disaster recovery and business continuity test. I've actually migrated data centers um, as well as uh, helped organizations improve their disaster recovery posture in the process. So this is a topic near and dear in my heart, especially with stuff that's going on today. So I'm excited to uh, talk about it. Great. Great. So actually, sort of the first thing, you know, we talk about business continuity, we talk about disaster recovery. So just in terms of sort of framing the rest of the conversation, where would you want to start? I think probably the best way to kind of talk about this is a little more holistically, right? When you, when we talk about disaster recovery, it is a subset of business continuity. And in business continuity, you really start to look at what are the risks to the organization? What are the potential impacts? How do I prevent those? And then if they were to occur, um, this is where disaster recovery, you know, starts to come in is what is my response strategy and what are my recovery strategies, you know, related to that. So people use those terms uh, synonymously, but they are a little bit different. One is a subset of a broader umbrella. So, yeah, probably where I would start. Okay. And and just to dive a little deeper into that, you know, what I heard you just say is that disaster recovery is actually the sort of the response. So it's not just that it's a subset to business continuity because it tends to be more technical. Uh, in nature of, you know, bringing systems back up, but it's also, you know, not the, necessarily the whole process. It's something that's already happened and now we're bringing things up. Do I have that right? You actually kind of hit the nail on the head and one of the biggest weaknesses that we're seeing with organizations today, and that is they have approached disaster recovery as being a highly technical thing. You know, we talk about data centers and we talk about uh, loss of um, IT assets and recovering those assets, recovering data related to a functionality uh, to support business processes. But there are multiple types of disasters and not all of them result in an IT asset loss. Right. Some of them simply are workforce disruptions like we're seeing today. Right. Due to health concerns, many folks are working remote. How do you engage those remote teams? Can you still use the same business processes? You haven't lost any IT assets. You haven't lost any IT technology capability. But your workforce is now different and how that workforce works and the processes they support may need to be altered in order to recover from this. There are some organizations that had never considered having a remote workforce before. They're very adamant that everyone must be in the office. We need high touch, high collaboration. Makes a lot of sense. But this is, in a way, a type of a disaster for those types of businesses that aren't used to it. So what are some things to think about when building a plan? Well, I think when we start when we start talking about plans, I mean, we do have to start with business continuity, right? And it starts with... Um, you know, what is our, our core business? What are the the risk that 
that would disrupt that business, right? Whether it stops it altogether, slows it down, stops it. What are those uh, vectors that would result in that loss of business functionality? And so from that perspective, we need to, we do need to look at things. The easiest stuff to look at is the technical stuff, right? We talk about denial of service attacks or other types of cybersecurity incidents, data breaches, or physical losses of IT assets, right? A tornado hits a data center uh, or a hurricane floods a, a data center. Those are all types of attack vectors, but we also have to look at the some of the things that we don't typically consider, right? Health pandemics. There are large companies that did look at that and had a business continuity plan in place. Apple and uh, Facebook, for example, are two high profile ones. Recently, they were in the news because they donated millions and millions of N95 masks. And the first question that people had is, why are they donating those masks? Well, they donated those masks because in their business continuity plan, they knew that their facilities were located in high risk wildfire environments in which uh, smoke pollution could be disruptive to the workforce. So they had N95 masks on hand uh, in order to enable those workers to continue to work during those conditions. Now, they moved everybody remote. They donated the mask. Right. But most people forgot or missed that underlying story that they had those because they had an underlying understanding of what could disrupt their business and how should they plan for it. So they need to consider all of those facets and right and not just health pandemics, um, not just pollution, but you know, what about the potential of civil unrest? If you're a business that was located in the city of uh, Ferguson and St. Louis during, you know, the protests and demonstrations, your business was very much disrupted. And so how do you deal with that? So there are lots of attack vectors that you have to consider. You have to look at what those potential impacts might be, how you might respond to those situations uh, and go from there. If you were advising somebody on this, would you have them focus more on brainstorming all the different things that could happen and then follow them downstream towards the impacts and assess that way? Or are you really just thinking of sort of impacts? Actually, I would start with critical business processes. Okay. Um, if if you you know have a process that's done by and and I don't mean to say this dismissively, but if you've got some small function that's done by five people in some remote city that has minor or negligible impact on on your business, you might not necessarily do any business continuity or disaster planning recovery planning around that, right? So you want to start with those critical business processes and what does it take to support it, right? And there's always three components. The first and most important is always people. Right. Work doesn't get done without people. So what are what are the potential impacts on people doing that job? What are the technology pieces that they use to leverage that job? And then what are the processes they follow to do that? If you understand that, then then you start going through and figuring out, OK, what could disrupt this? Right. What are the disruptions and what would those impacts sort of look like? So there are some organizations. Restaurants are a great example, an easy one that the layperson could understand. Um, if you go into a restaurant, most restaurants have a point of sale system to, in order to take orders. If that point of sale system goes down, there's still people doing the work. There's still a process to follow, but the technology is no longer there. So what do you do? You go to paper methods, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, they'll go to paper ticketing systems, and they've got a process in place to do that. Uh, many uh, retail stores uh, operate very similarly, right, have some sort of paper or standby sort of system process in which they could partially operate. So you want to look at that and what that impact might be. Okay. Rich, do you have anything you'd like to add on that? I, we've been sort of shutting you out here. Yeah, that's no worries. You know, the other thing to kind of look at is, you know, like Joe was saying on the people side too, you know, you you may have something that only affects the, the technology such as, you know, a cyber attack or something like that. 
but you could also have something that just affects the people side or the business um, facilities that people work in. So, you know, looking at the pandemic that we're in today, people had to be relocated. You know, the data centers and the data and all the services and systems are still in place. But how do you get these people in the right places and get access to those systems? So that's just another another vector to look at. Okay. Yeah. And Rich, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to dig into that a little bit because I, I think this is a, an important thing when you're considering potential vectors of disruption uh, and, and responses. You know, when, when all these companies had these, um, they had employees on site, right? They have sophisticated internal networks. They've got dedicated pipes to their data center or even potentially to uh, a cloud service that they're following. When you take those workers and they're no longer in the facility and you make them remote, you now have sort of a different network configuration in which your company's traffic is flowing. So there are different security concerns you have to factor in, but where the traffic is coming from is also different. You potentially could swamp, especially if you're going over like a VPN connection or forcing everyone to go a VPN, you could swamp your VPN circuit uh, or even the VPN appliance that you might be using. And that creates its own sort of disruption. And so you haven't really you know, recovered. And early on, there were a lot of organizations that experienced that, right? They oversaturated their, their VPN network and their VPN appliance, and people couldn't work and still couldn't do what they needed to do, which, uh, precipitated many organizations starting to look at, you know, cloud-based virtual desktop uh, solutions, right, VDI-style solutions. So I think it's important to call that type of stuff out that even though the technology is still there, the way you access the technology is now different. That in and of itself has its own sort of impact that most people don't think about, right? It's not as easy as just saying, you know, everyone go home and work from home residential networks are not known for their reliability, right? They certainly have gotten better over the last decade, but there are still folks, especially those that live a little more remote, right? 45 minutes to an hour away from a major city. Those rural network connections tend to have a lot of latency. They're not really good for for video or high bandwidth activities. That creates a sort of challenge and disruption to workflow as well. Um, and so you have to look at the entire ecosystem in which that process and those people and technology exist to understand, is this uh, response strategy going to be effective for me? You know, I think that that's important to call out. The other thing that I would add on there is something we haven't talked about, which is the potential impact to your organization may not be directly to your organization, but might be indirect. So in manufacturing, we talk about supply chain disruptions. Well, if you're relying on third-party services to provide things for you, you have to look at the potential business impact on them and what response and recovery strategy might exist in this situation. One of the reasons that a lot of organizations go to the cloud, whether it's AWS or Azure, is simply because they want to be able to put something in a location and then have an automated sort of failover capability to another region. So if we encounter a problem on the East Coast, we can fail over to the West Coast or even globally, right, we'll have that distributed sort of services uh, available. That's one way to minimize a disruption to a single facility is by enabling those style capabilities. So those are some other things that you could consider as well. Great. I like the idea there that you're driving toward the, the cascading impact, right? You may think that you have a primary, I guess you're saying like attack vector or primary issue of concern, but it can go, you used examples that went two layers down, but they could easily go a third or a fourth 
Yeah, and and at some point you do have to cut that off because you can't plan for the world. You can't plan for everything <laughs> to happen in the world. But you have to look at, you know, what is what is really critical to what we're doing? And if we're relying on a service that's critical, do they have appropriate safeguards in place that meet our, our needs? But you start getting into that third and fourth layer, you're probably going a bit too deep and you're probably going to see broader, more more impactful situations occurring that may have you consider other options than simply recovery. You know, suspending business is a viable uh, option as a response strategy, right? We talk about recovery because it's like we got to get up and running. Sometimes it's not to your benefit to get up and running. Nobody wants to open up their coffee cafe in the middle of a riot, right? You suspend business. You don't resume it. Uh, So you have to look at that as well. It could even cost you more to run at a limping along you know if you're like a coffee shop or a restaurant and you can only you know have six customers in your restaurant at a time like joe said it may be uh, better just as a response strategy just to shut down at that point because it's costing you more to run the business in in limp mode than it is running at a tiny capacity there's another thing that we haven't really talked about as it comes to you know business continuity and, and potential disaster impacts one of the things that a disaster can do can increase demand of certain types of services. So if you think of a calamity like a hurricane or a tornado or a hundred year flood, insurance companies often see a significant uptick in claims. And so part of their response strategy to claims is, is to stand up claims teams, actually maneuver claims teams to those locations for high touch, high impactful uh, service. But here in the pandemic time, one of the things that we've seen is a lot of state systems really struggle, especially unemployment systems, struggle to keep up with the demand of individuals you know, filing for services. A lot of unemployment systems in states, I know for especially in the state of Ohio, uh, it's an old mainframe system. It's been around for, for right. a long time. But in addition, there was new federal requirements that said, hey, in addition to salary and hourly employees, you now have to consider potential 10 99 individuals as a part of your unemployment uh, compensation. And so there was even new requirements that they weren't really prepared to to implement uh, and can't be done in a rapid fashion because they're such an aging system. So between the increased demand, changing requirements, it really crippled a lot of state systems. And then compounding that, uh, and this is where, you know, starts to really kind of twist your noodle around uh, how, how, in depth do you really need to plan and think about this and this is where brainstorming sessions around you know business impacts and and doing true brainstorming and being really really creative coming into play but one of the things that that they encountered in the state of ohio is the state of ohio has a web form in which employers uh, who are open can submit names of employees who refuse to return to work and that would disqualify them from unemployment benefits, regardless of your political leaning. And, and this is not a political discussion, but I think it's important that some people took issue with that from a political perspective. So they actually wrote scripts that would not really do with denial of service, but they were trying to um, overwhelm the system so that it couldn't respond. But they are also trying, trying to inject a lot of, for lack of a better phrase, fraudulent data into the process, yeah. so it would be difficult to sift out the real data from the fraudulent data as a form of a political protest. That in and of itself is a type of disruption. So, so far, we, you know, we've got classic physical issues, fire, whatever. We have personnel-only issues. We've got sort of cascading things. We've added in what if the disaster is actually increased demand. So that we have so many different things here. And you just talked about the brainstorming, right? How crazy do you get, should a company get with scenarios and how do you filter out which ones you really 
want to focus on for a plan. So you you really want people to get as crazy as possible, right? That's really one of the fundamental things about a brainstorming session is nothing is off limits. You you don't want to squelch the creativity because even though somebody says a crazy idea, it may trigger a rational and likely idea in somebody else for them to voice. So you really want to get everything out on the table, you know, kind of talk about it. Um, it's easy to start with things that are easily known and and well articulated uh, environmental disasters of one way or another, you know, and you could break them out into categories, right? We could talk about weather related events. We could talk about workforce displacement events. So there are different categories that you could go through to talk about that, you know, IT asset failure, what, what might those modes be? And that'll get you down into some of the conversations. So you talk about workforce displacement. You can then start talking about civil unrest. You can talk about pandemics. You can get creative and talk about, you know, chemical spills, you know, train derailments, semi-derailments, those types of things, acts of war, right? You know, IT asset failure, right? You could talk about equipment failure. You could talk about power disruptions. You could start getting into that and start talking about that. And you could start talking about would one disaster trigger a different type of disaster to also occur? That would be something to consider as well. So get everything out on the table and then you can go back through those, not during that session, during a separate session. You can then start talking about, okay, the the likelihood, right? This is where risk versus uh, risk and impact sort of combination scoring comes into play. What is the what is the potential impact? What's the likelihood that this re- risk uh, would be realized? And then determine if it's appropriate to have a response or recovery strategy related to that. Okay. And I think cost comes into that as well. You know. Absolutely. You know, when when you're weighing the risk, you know, is the cost of providing a a backup data center or a backup for the backup really justifiable, and can we really afford that? Right, right. I like how you sort of laid out the sequence there. You know, the original brainstorming, risk assessment, identifying what you want to go ahead with the plan, and then you know, working out that that plan. So, how do you how do you recommend? You know, I've seen some companies do things like a tabletop exercise, usually for security, but maybe it's for other areas as well. How would you recommend some of these things get tested, you know, for readiness? Once you've gone through there, you've developed your plan, you ha- you have your response strategy and recovery strategies, you may want to test both the response and recovery strategies, right? Because mm-hmm. in some cases, it's not a recovery, it's just a response, but that may require that you shift things, right? Sending people home during a pandemic is is a response strategy. You're not really recovering, but you do need to respond to the situation. You really need to do structured exercises. And there's a there's a saying in in the DevOps world that I think is applicable in the in the business space, right? The more painful something is to do, the more often you should do it. Right. The, the whole goal. <laughs> right. I know it's funny, but the whole goal yeah. is to make these things routine and less painful. And so you want to test them frequently and and often. There's organizations that will do an annual disaster recovery test, and that's usually an IT-oriented failover to to a co-location site or to uh, alternate cloud services, whatever that might be. And then people run through some basic functionality to verify that the environments were spun up and and work. But they only do that on an annual basis, and it's usually a multi-day or multi-week event it never goes off well, right? There's always lessons learned. And the number one lesson learned is, is our procedures are out of date. We don't really know how to do this, but we're smart people and we can limp along. We'll eventually figure it out. So yay, we passed. Uh, and let's do this again in a year. 
in a real crisis, in a real uh, emergency, that might not be sufficient. That might not work. Some of those key resources who are heroic and make things happen may or may not be available or they may not have access to be available. So you want to make sure that you have a well-rehearsed plan with lots of redundancy to make things happen. So doing it more frequently will give you that comfort that you can do things. Some things you will be able to do frequently. So for example, if you want to talk about workforce displacement and can my VPNs keep up, you could decide uh, to either send the entire company home on a semi-annual basis, a monthly basis, even one day a week, or you could rotate through departments just to make sure that people are used to working in a remote fashion. So you want to practice those things and practice them often. In a modern IT delivery world, right, in modern software delivery, we talk about, you know, releasing on demand. You want to release new features functionalities right after it's developed. Get that out to consumers because that's, you know, speed to market is important, but speed to re of recovery in a disaster is also important. There's lots of opportunities for business to increase market share, uh, grab customers if you can move faster than your competitors do. So that's, that's vitally uh, important. So practice, 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 um, as much as you can. If you can fail over, get used to failing over. If you need to deploy new things from backups, de deploy new things from backup. Make that routine for the organization where possible. Not all situations are possible, but where possible, do that. Okay. You know, another thing I throw in there too is uh, documentation and having a well-written plan because you know, you may have Dwayne down in IT that knows how to do all this stuff and, you know, can show that you can fail over or recover from a disaster, no problem. But, you know, maybe Dwayne uh, gets a better job offer and moves along or worse, worse yet, retires, whatever. You know, I think having it well documented and practiced by other team members than, you know, the ones that know the systems the best um, is also an important testing strategy. Absolutely. Again, my memory of that Arthur Anderson issue, I mean, it was another generation and, and a lot of different things from technology, but, you know, we were basically told with no warning, get out of the building. And so I was in the uh, wide array networking group and we're standing on a street corner. And the, the first thing our management was going, you know, okay, who needs to be here, right? Who's important to, to continuity? But we had no plan. You know, there was no plan at all. It was being made up on the fly standing on a street corner. Yeah, so that's, uh, <laughs> so that, you know, lesson learned number one is, you know, have some kind of a plan, you know, personnel plan, et cetera. So otherwise you get that sort of circumstance. You've worked through the plan, you've got these different things for scenarios for testing, but how do you decide what IT resources need to be in a disaster recovery plan? Yeah, I think you really have to go down, uh, like Joe was saying earlier, and look at all of your critical business applications. What are the applications that are required, to, um, you know, to continue your operations that uh, create your cash flow, and really put a put an organization to those, the most critical to the least critical, and then start mapping out, you know, which systems, what data, what processes all tie into those uh, critical business applications and systems that support that uh, business operation. So from the business continuity plan, which is a really high level, you go into the business impact analysis, restart, you know, scoring these applications and, and processes and the technology behind them. Once you get to that technology layer, that's when you start looking at, okay, how important is this to be up and what is the recovery time objective, the recovery point objective, which will drive what your DR strategy is for those technical components. 
you know, maybe it needs to be online um, within minutes. You know, it, it could be, you know, you can run your business fine for a couple of days without um, this particular business application. So maybe that's just a backup and restore where the other ones you have a, a hot standby somewhere. Scoring those applications and those business processes that really make your, your business um, survivable and the technology behind it and how quickly you need to need to restore those systems to keep the business running. Okay. Something else I know you mentioned from our pre-work, there are AWS-specific blueprints for building disaster recovery. Can you talk a little more about those? Yeah, when I was talking about, you know, looking at the different systems, you know, all the different systems may have different recovery requirements. So you can set up, you know, in, in your cloud, whether it be AWS or Azure or Google or any of the others, you can architect each of the applications in different ways to support that DR strategy. Let's say, for example, you had a, a retail uh, front-end application that, you know, if it went down, you're losing $30,000 a minute. You know, you may want to do like a, a hot standby system where you have active-active type of architecture running those applications across two different data centers and the data is all replicated back and forth. For something that's uh, less critical, let's say it's an HR system or a payroll system that you only use um, a couple times a month, you know, maybe it's okay just to back up those those data sets and replicate them to an offsite and you can have uh, tapes sent back in in plenty of time to get things back up. Or you could just replicate those to a, another site and not have systems that are running, eating up your your compute and storage budget. Um, you can just replicate the data over and bring them up in ample time. Between those two, which are really, the, you know, the 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 Ferrari and the uh, bicycle, you've got like a pilot, a pilot light and a warm standby. A pilot light is basically you have the the most critical systems like DNS and load balancers or uh, proxy servers that might be running in an alternate site. But then you just have images of all your other systems and data sitting, you know, getting replicated over um, on a periodic basis to the other site where you can bring those up in hours to a day. The next level up is what we call a warm standby, where you actually have all of your systems uh, replicated over all your critical systems running in that standby site. So you don't have to do all the restore of the data. They're actually replicated over in a fashion where you can just bring bring the systems up and they look like like your production system. And another point that I'd like to bring up is once you fail over, a lot of people don't really think about how am I going to fail back if I have to run another site, you know, for a month or uh, worst case, you know, six months. I'm collecting data, changing it, you know, my data sets, and then if I have to fail back. You have to have a strategy in place to be replicating all that stuff in the reverse so that you don't just fail back and have old stale data and stale systems um, at your production site. Right, right. So you guys both go out to clients and talk a lot about disaster recovery, business continuity, you know, the different services that are part of that. What are the common sort of pushback or, or resistance that you get from clients? I think one of the things you see is most a lot of people just think of your DR and uh, business continuity strategy is let's get everything backed up, you know, and they don't really think about all the impacts or, you know, tying it back to business functions. 
So, you know, it may be, okay, we're using Veritas or some other uh, Barracuda backup. So let's just put it in our, our regular schedule. Everything gets backed up incrementally every night and full backups once a week. You know, that may not be appropriate if you're not really tying it back to the um, business RTO and RPO where, you know, you need to be, I know we didn't talk a lot about the RTO and RPO, but you have a recovery point objective and recovery time. Uh, recovery time is really how quickly do you need to restore those services and get them back mm-hmm. functional. Um, you also have the re- recovery point objective is like how much data can I really lose, which really dictates how often you need to back up for your, your databases. For example, if you're backing them up um, only once a day, you may lose a whole day's worth of data and that may impact your business where you, you have to shut it down. So you really have to look at you know different different systems and how they tie back to the importance of the the business and uh, set your your backups and recovery strategies based on that RTO and RPO individually by system. I I would add, I think one of the biggest pushbacks we get, at least in the technical space, is either the amount of effort that it takes to architect a, a recovery solution if one isn't in place or to dramatically improve it. So for example, in, in this day and age, it's a little more trivial to go from a, a single uh, you know, database like SQL Server to a cluster mode. It, it's another thing to re-architect an application to be able to handle that as, as well. If, if you have an installed application running on bare metal, can you get it into a, a virtualized instance? Can you do some other form of refactoring to, to make that more amenable to, to recovery based on the objectives that you have? So there's a complexity thing to some of this thing. And then there's also a cost thing. And then when it comes to human behavior, what we're really talking about is we're talking about creating an investment in a response strategy that may or may not ever be needed. And when people start thinking about events and they start viewing them as, well, these are these feel like highly unlikely, then their motivation to spend the the money to invest in that re-architecture or that recovery style posture, right? The incremental backups, the hot backups, those types of things, it, be, it becomes much less of a motivator, right? And so that's when you start seeing resistance come in. Obviously, you know, cost is a thing because there's an initial investment to get it up and running. There's a maintenance to it. Uh, and of course, I always recommend testing that and that may create some additional cost as, as well. So that's one area that we see it. We also see some on, on the business side as well. And again, it comes back to people think that this is a, a once in a million shot and maybe we don't need to respond to it. It's easy for people to envision, well, you know, a tornado hitting a data center in, in the Midwest, possible on the coast, a uh, lot less likely, but you know, we, we might see flooding, we might see, you know, fire, but, you know, a meteor hitting our building, not going to happen. We're not going to plan for it. So trying to figure out which ones are likely and responding to those and investing in those responses versus those that are so extremely unlikely or the side effects of that type of disaster happening are so severe that your only option might be suspension versus resumption of business. That's where you start to see some of the business pushback. But on the IT side, it's it's the technical complexity and cost that an IT budget might have to absorb to support it. 
jump in on that as well with the the cost factor when we're architecting you know a a dr solution that needs to be like very highly available a lot of times those are very difficult to to set up you know for example setting up sql always on replication across you know two on-premise data centers and just for a plug for the cloud you know a lot of these services come as a platform as a service where you're not maintaining the underlying operating system and it's more of a check this box if i want to enable multi-region across geographical boundaries across the united states replication where it makes it a whole lot simpler so there could be a lot of pushback on you know if you design an architecture that says oh we need to set up two different vmware clusters in two different data centers and install Oracle Rack or SQL always on and, and do all the configuration and the advanced networking. Uh, a play to go to the cloud makes that a whole lot a whole lot easier. And it's not just in databases, um, but there's a lot of PaaS and SaaS offerings that um, have all that infrastructure resiliency and availability built in. So it sounds like a lot of your work is is really educational, right? It's it's thinking about different types of business continuity loss or disaster issues and, and getting people to, you know, sort of appreciate them and assess them from a risk level. What do you think are some of the key other things or, or key points you've learned in trying to do that education? Um, you know, maybe surprising things that you're, you you didn't think you had to explain. Well, something that I've run into, you know, from the technical side is a lot of people, um, you know, go set up a backup or a DR strategy and they need to keep their backups for, um, a certain amount of time due to, you know, some regulation. And then they've, they've gone with s- some solution that ties them into that solution. If you want to switch over to something that's more modern, um, you know, let's say you're using, you know, for example, some backup software that stores the, the data and the archives in a proprietary format that can't be re-extracted. That kind of locks you into that strategy for a long time so i think just forward thinking about mm-hmm. um, you know the changing landscape um, in modernization of data centers and procedures and processes you know make sure you don't get locked into a, a solution that doesn't grow with the business right joe anything come to mind uh, for yourself from the education side i i think the biggest thing is just getting people to expand their their mind and and view potential disasters as more than just a loss of IT assets. You know, once you hear it and you, and you know, you start thinking about it, a lot of people are like, well, you know, yeah, I get it. That's, that's a no brainer. But when you usually go into these conversations, the first thing that people focus on is it's really about a loss of IT assets or loss of accessibility to them, loss of data. It's very technical oriented and not necessarily, you know, people and process oriented, which I, I think are equally, if not more so uh, important because they're a little harder to recover. You lose a person, it's hard to replace them. Your process gets disrupted. Um, if people are accustomed to that process and used to it, it's hard to replace it with a new process. Uh, requires a lot of training, a lot of effort. So in many ways, those losses in those spaces are more impactful than loss in a, in a technology space. One thing I would ask people to consider as well is a response strategy isn't necessarily about resuming business as you knew it or even a close facsimile of it. Uh, it might be uh, branching out into new alternatives that you had not considered before. Um, I know during this pandemic, one of the things that we've seen restaurants do and even high end uh, high dollar sort of restaurants. Uh, first, they pivoted towards carry out. Of course, that's a 
was an initial suggestion, right? Carry out food. But one of the things that we've seen in a smattering of cities around the country is, and only because I find this interesting, uh, not that it's related to IT, but restaurants have found an alternative business in grocery delivery. So one of the things that we're experiencing mm-hmm. with large number of people staying home, restaurants being shut down, we have two supply chains. We have uh, commercial food supply chains that supplies restaurants, and then we have a residential food supply chain that you know provides uh, you know food to everyday households. Right, it's the typical grocery store that you go to. Well, those foods are packaged very differently, right? When you buy eggs for a restaurant, you don't buy them at a dozen at a time, right? You buy them a crate at a time, which could be one tray of eggs is like 36 dozen and you buy, you know, six or 10, however they're packaged, you know, all at once. You can't easily repackage that for consumers to um, to consume because they're never going to buy that many eggs. But what restaurants are doing is saying, hey, we're going to buy these things, right? We buy lettuce in bulk. We buy produce in bulk. We buy these types of products. So redistributing them and offering that as a service along with meal delivery is a new way of branching out a new style of service that might only be temporary during the course of the pandemic, um, but it's a way to help the business generate revenue and stay afloat. So there is an opportunity to consider how might you pivot your services during those discussions? It's not often talked about. It's not usually included because most people are only focused on the disaster, the impact and uh, response and recovery portions of it. But thinking about, you know, alternate ways and looking at what are the opportunities during a disaster? Um, and most people don't normally think about the opportunities. And so I, th- I would encourage folks to add that to their plate as something to consider because guys, I think some really interesting things might happen as a result. Yeah, that's a great, great question. In fact, it raises another thought here. You know, I think the pandemic has, in certain ways, surprised a lot of us, you know, from thinking about things in a certain business perspective. And one is, I think a traditional way of looking at disaster recovery, because it is, first of all, more IT focused, but it's also, from a timing perspective, I think it tends to be, it's a point, you know, this event happens, it's done, we have to recover. Maybe there's a, you know, some span of downtime of, you know, two days, three days, a week, maybe. But it feels like we generally don't think of of these things in the span of months. So, for instance, if you were, you know, counseling an airline, would you have envisioned a situation that says, okay, you're going to fly at 5% capacity on your airplanes for six months? Hard to imagine somebody would have actually thought of that scenario. Yeah, and, and that's that's where people's propensity when they start brainstorming and thinking about things, they only think about things that seem likely in their lifetime. You're right. There's a reason they call things a hundred year flood. It's not that it happens exactly at a hundred years. It's just one of those things that might happen once in your lifetime, if that at all. Right. And the further out you go and the less likely something seems, the less likely it is you're to do anything to address it. Because, again, it could be very, very expensive. If you take the airline industry, what would their option have been to to weather this? to jack up prices um, during normal business to such a degree in order to have enough cash flow to weather this storm, that would have priced them out of business at that point in time. So that wasn't really viable. There are just going to be some situations that you really can't respond to or you can't do in a methodical way. But what you could, could do is say, hey, if we're disrupted for a prolonged period of time, What's the minimum amount of business and how do we generate that to, to operate on in order to survive? And maybe the answer is, is that you can't. And so this is where you have to have the hard discussions around, OK, can we suspend business? And maybe in the airline industry, maybe not because, you know, planes are typically uh, leased and not necessarily bought outright or, you know, there's ongoing liabilities that they have that they have to continue to pay but have no revenue coming in for it. 
you know, in this case, right, this is hindsight. So we have the benefit of hindsight, right? The government's offered loans that would help, you know, these organizations for a short period of time. But at some point, everything runs out, right? And then what do you do? And that's when you have to face the reality of, you know what? Uh, this is what would trigger a sale, right? And we know in these conditions, it would be also be a below market sale. So maybe there's a point before this, if we think that this is a foregone conclusion, that we try to sell before the market bottoms out in order to maximize value, right? Some of these things, they're just really hard. It's one of the reasons they're called black swan events, right? Right, um, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's also where insurance comes in too. I mean, that's another disaster recovery solution is, you know, having an insurance or a rider policy or something for these, you know, 100 year type of events. Right, right. So just uh, maybe just wrapping up some great discussion. Rich, any final thoughts? Any last points that we, we didn't bring up on anything else? No, I think I got pretty much everything out on the plate I wanted to get out and get across. Okay, okay. Joe, how about you? Yeah, for, for me, I would just, you know, encourage people to understand that while you're considering what's happening to to your business during disaster as being unique, it's probably more of an industry-wide thing. Local disasters that only happen to your company are uh, usually a lot easier to plan for, um, and most people do. Uh, but look at, you know, what what might happen to an entire industry? How might you respond as a member of that industry to, to what's going on? Just to give that some some thought in your planning process and expand your sort of brainstorming horizons. But really, at the end of the day, you cannot plan for anything, but you need to plan for some things. Um, so having those discussions, doing those tabletop exercises, evaluating the impact, evaluating the likelihood of that risk being realized, figuring out what your response strategy is, whether you're going to try you know, mitigate it or transfer it or accept it. Right. There's multiple risk response strategies. And, and then uh, detailing those strategies out, validating them, testing them, but then also from a recovery perspective, right? If we're talking total lo uh, loss versus just a, a minor disruption, you know, how do you deal with that? And, you know, the technology side is different than the people side is different than the process side. And just making sure that you factor all of those into your planning will better enable your organization to survive what happens. All right. Thanks a lot. I think that uh, that's a good wrap. This has been Centric Biz and Tech Talks. Thanks for listening.